Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, I sincerely hope everybody is safe and healthy out there, you and your loved ones. It's been trying times in America, to say the least, over the last couple of weeks. We're glad we could be here to provide some sort of getaway from all that's going on, but we absolutely want to wish you the very, very best. As a matter of fact, as of the release of this episode, I had found out a couple of days ago that two of my family members were diagnosed with COVID-19. So it is very, very tough times for everybody. We just wish you guys the best. Please continue to follow the guidelines, social distance, stay at home, do the best you can to help us stop the spread of this thing and get back to life as we know it. Uh, Speaking of things that we know, remind you guys to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Let's really grow that followership and help grow the hazard ground as well as YouTube. Our subscribership is growing there. We want to keep it growing, so do that as well. Finally, our partnership with Amazon. Don't forget about it because you're helping veterans across the country from your own home. All you got to do is go to our website, hazardground.com, click on the Amazon banner at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. Do your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you spend, and we'll donate it right back. And speaking of our webpage, HazardGround.com, and the Sponsors tab, all of the sponsors that are part of this podcast are small local-owned businesses. Uh, They're veteran-owned businesses, and these are people that desperately need your help in these times. So check out the Sponsors tab. See if you can support those individual companies and this podcast by going out there and purchasing those products. Please, please, please help us out. Help everybody out. Help a friend out, neighbor out all along the way. It will make a difference once the smoke clears and we are through this thing. With that said, certainly appreciate all your guys' patience. And again, stay healthy, stay safe, social distance, be smart. And let's get on with this week's episode. And joining us this week is a current Green Beret who's finishing up his 20th year in the United States Army. He has seven deployments overseas, including multiple ones to Iraq and across the Middle East. As well as he nears the end of his 20-year career, he is starting a clothing company that is veteran-owned and focused on telling the stories of veterans. The name of that company is Eighth Order. He is Sergeant First Class Tom Kerr, joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Tom, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Mark, I appreciate it. Very happy to be here. All right. uh, Lots to get to in a 20-year career. Uh, As you're about to finish up active duty, uh, 20 years, man, did did you think... When you first got into this business that you'd be doing it for 20 years? Um, yes, actually, uh, when I joined uh, in high school, uh, I was about 17 years old, and that was always my my end goal was to get to that 20-year brief retirement. So ultimately, what was the reason you decided to join the Army? So uh, I've got a lot of family that served in the military. My father served, my grandfather served, uh, grandfather in World War II, and uh, I, I always looked to them uh, – as inspirational and they were definitely uh my heroes growing up Uh, i also did junior junior rotc in high school and i really excelled in our raider program and um, made it up through the ranks in that pretty quickly and i was like you know i can i can do this for a living you signed up prior to 9-11 happening so where were you on 9-11 
So uh, on 9-11, I was assigned to the 101st Airborne 502nd Delta Company, uh, and I was in the chow hall actually eating breakfast with our company XO, uh, Tim Gant, and we watched it all happen, and he, he was looking over top of me, and he's like, holy crap, that's the, that's the Twin Towers. Like, they're burning. They're on fire. And <laughs> we, we looked at that, and then we looked at each other, and it's like, we got to go. Let's, let's get things rolling. So. Yeah, it's so funny. I mean, maybe it's because I'm a native New Yorker. I had my mind in a different place. But, like, I never my, – my, my thought wasn't – and I was, you know, commissioned at that time. I, I never thought, like, hey, we're going to war. I was just more worried about what was going on back home. So I'm always curious to hear people's different reactions um, on 9-11. But, again, I, I think the military thing was, like, one of the furthest things from my mind because, well, hell, I was trying to locate friends and family who were in Manhattan that day. But uh, you kind of had a sense from that moment that uh, your life was going to change. Absolutely. Uh, we knew it was going to change locally. Uh, obviously, uh, immediately afterwards, they locked down all the posts and uh, wouldn't let anybody on. Uh, made for a, a difficult uh, travel for the next couple months, getting on and off post. Um, but we knew we were going to do something. We didn't know where it was going to be, what it was going to be, uh, whether it was you know guarding our own base or you know deploying someplace to uh, to take it to the bad guys that did that to us. Now, you don't actually don't do your first deployment until the invasion of Iraq. So in that kind of two year span or, you know, 20 month span, whatever it was, um, even as Af- Afghanistan was kicking off, did you guys think you were going anywhere? We, did you guys want to go? What was the kind of mindset and feeling? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you had a bunch of hard charging uh, PFCs and specialists all throughout the 101st. We, we wanted to go and get it on in Afghanistan, just like uh, we watched some of our brothers from 187 and 5th Group down the road. You know, it, we wanted to go be a part of that uh, very much so. Um, to the point, uh, you know, we we trained more so in that little time period than I did in the very first year that I was in the military. Uh, you know, the, the money started opening up. You know, we uh, we actually had a budget instead of uh, scraping by, and you know, everybody gets three blanks for a, an exercise. You know, we we saw. We saw a full-on change, and we knew that's you know the military's way of saying, "Hey, you guys need to get ready." All right. So, kind of as the lead up to the invasion of Iraq is happening, what are you hearing? And again, granted, like you said, you're a you're a PFC, so a lot of stuff doesn't get filtered down to your level at that point in time. But uh, you know, like we fast forward, Afghanistan's going on. How much are you hearing about Iraq prior to it happening? Um, I think just about as much as the uh, the American public was. Uh, so kind of seeing the administration going on and saying, hey, Saddam's harboring terrorists. He's got weapons of mass destruction, you know, and the whole lead up that uh, everybody else saw. So at the time, uh, E4 making E5, I uh, really wasn't privy to a lot of uh, the planning that was going on. So uh, I knew what the rest of the nation knew. Okay. Tell me about the first time you're hearing about the plan for the invasion? So uh, first time hearing of the plan of the invasion, we're actually in Kuwait at this point. So it would have been uh, February of 2003, uh, you know, arriving in Kuwait and getting all of our equipment prepped. Uh, now, Tom, hang on one second. I'm sorry to cut yeah. you off, but I just want to get some background. What What did they tell you when you left for Kuwait? I mean, does that make sense? Like, yeah, did, yeah. did you know at that point you guys were going to go north of Kuwait into Iraq? Or what did you hear about getting to Kuwait? Right. So uh, getting to Kuwait, it was, hey, we're going to go. It's going to be a preparation similar to uh, you know, the Desert Shield style. You know, get over there, gotcha. get to the okay. desert, get prepped. And if need be, you know, on order, move north. So. Okay. All right. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. 
so, so we got to Kuwait and uh, start test firing weapons and preparing and doing all that good stuff. And then, uh, you know, we finally get our briefings from the, the headquarters, the company and uh, battalion headquarters of like, all right, here's where each element is moving and here's and here's the battle plan forward. Uh, there, there was this huge plan of us doing a nice big air assault, you know, kind of like they did in the 90s with uh, Desert Storm. Uh, and that kind of fell through. We ended up doing the, the nice long drive <laughs> across the desert. So. Did that frustrate you in a sense? Like that's all you guys train for is to is to, to air assault in and all of a sudden you just got to take plane old vehicles up there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially when you're, you're in a vehicle for the third day driving in the desert, you know, you really come to appreciate, man, sling loading to some of you would have been a lot nicer than uh, driving for three days. So. What was that first you know, initiation of contact with the enemy, like as you guys began the invasion? Um, so we were kind of tailing the uh, third ID, right? Uh, so, you know, those guys were just blazing North and, you know, we were kind of left to pick up uh, the pieces as they went through each town. Uh, so we never made contact until, uh, on the job. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's a city in the Southern area, a very holy city for the people of Iraq as well as uh, the entire Muslim uh, world. And uh, that's where we really had our first resistance, um, mostly in uh, being mortared and, you know, fields being landmined and things like that nature. So, Najaf, for those who don't know, was very interesting um, because, and I don't know if you're privy to this or correct me if I'm wrong, but if I, my history recalls, you know, there was a, a bunch of friendly fire incidents there where, you, where people were on the ground and it was there was just a lot of confusion about it. But it, it quickly sort of escalated into a strongholds, not the right word, but just a, I guess a kind of hot spot um, after everything was the push on Baghdad. That was still kind of going on after. Correct. Yes. Uh, so between Najaf and then eventually we made it to Karbala, there was a lot of activity uh, in both those cities. Uh, you know, like I said, third ID kind of blazed through and it was more like, hey, if we don't hit anything, then just keep moving until we get to Baghdad. So, uh, you know, we were there to pick up the pieces. Uh, Najaf was mild compared to some of the other uh, battles that we would get into. Um, but, yeah, they did. Uh, and that's kind of like when insurgency really started. Right. So a lot of them ditched their their uniforms. You know, you you'd pull into a military barracks and all the uniforms would be spread about and, you know, all their chemical gears everywhere. And it's like, okay, these guys aren't wearing their uniforms. They're not wearing their kit, you know. So then you had to start looking for plain clothes, or uh, a lot of them were wearing just black uh, outfits. So kind of hard to find your enemy that way. I ask this question a lot of guys because you train so hard for combat, um, but you don't really have the actual experience until you have the experience. And from that standpoint, you know, that sort of baptism by fire, if you will, what was that like for you, you know, having to fire the first rounds uh, against an actual enemy, not into a shoot house wall or a target or anything like that. Right. Yeah. So, so uh, take it back. I'm, I'm part of a, I, uh, so I was Delta company first battalion 502nd and we're an AT platoon. So, you know, came in, I was an 11 hotel, but they changed us out to 11 Bravos. Either way, we're, we're still the AT platoon. Uh, so I had just recently been promoted to E5, actually February 1st, and I'd taken control of a, a truck. So I had a, a section within the AT platoon. So brand new E5, and oh, by the way, you're going to combat. <laughs> you you got you to gotta lead soldiers into combat now. And um, yeah, um, that just... 
being in charge of a, a Mark 19 tow, you know, 249 gunner and telling them to engage is, you know, that, that, that moment for me was just like, holy crap, like I am about to tell this guy to kill someone, you know? Um, and it was, it was a little bit, uh, say overcoming, but it was, it was, it was odd. <laughs> you know, you're used to telling the guy to fire and you got the, you know, the training rounds, but whenever it's actually to do it, to stop somebody from assaulting you, it's a whole different experience. So once you get the first two out, though, it becomes a lot easier. You yeah. start to recognize. <laughs> you start to recognize. All right, here's here's my my line in the sand where, you know, all right, I'm gonna fire. Or I'm not gonna fire. So, did you sustain any casualties on that initial invasion? Um. So we did in the battalion, and uh, our company did not. You know, we had injuries, Purple Heart stuff, but no uh, no KIA within our platoon or our company. Did you talk to you guys kind of about that sort of thing and the mortality of it all? I mean, you, you know, you get a sense, especially in, in that environment, that you're so gung ho about going to fight that you don't ever stop to talk about the bad side of combat, you know, because we all assume that we're all going to win, we're all going to survive, we're all going to be fine, because that's kind of in our training and in our thinking. But um, when it doesn't go that way, as combat often does, uh, you know, what did your guys, how did they react? I mean, did, it, did, did was there any sort of thing that sticks out about that experience? Yeah, I, I remember, you know, we all talk about it, uh, you know, the, uh, the casualties of war and what that certain percentage is, you know, hey, you're expected to take 33% casualties or whatever the number is. And, uh, you know, we kind of look around, it's like, oh, well, that's, you know, one of us from each truck. <laughs> right. You know, so, you know, it was, uh, it was definitely on our minds. Uh, we probably didn't vocalize it that much, uh, more so just trying to be macho and, you know, hey, I'm going to go over there and kick some ass is uh, the way that most of us reacted now fast forward another 15 years and getting ready to go into syria and i'm telling a bunch of brand new green berets what it's going to be like you know, it was a lot different that time so so you end up spending a whole year there during that sort of initial invasion but i'm kind of curious after you guys had finished the assault on baghdad you know and it was uh it was mission accomplished by may i think it was right it was when president bush hanged that had that banner up there and Right, um, right. You know, in OIF one, after we kind of got through it, there was like a big lull, right? Because nobody kind of knew what was next. So, what was the environment like day to day? By the time you're two or three months into this thing, we own Baghdad, we own all the land that we're supposed to own, and what are we doing each day? Yeah. So, you know, we finished our, our drive north. We we moved past Kabbalah into Baghdad, did a little there. They pushed us out to Hadipa Dam. Uh, finally ending in Missoula. So most of the oh, so you went all the way up north. Yeah, yeah, we went all the way north. So 101st ended up pushing all their forces up there into Missoula. Uh, we were in Missoula by mid-April. Just out of curiosity, and, was that always the plan, or was that something that you guys are supposed to be a support force and, and stay behind 3ID and stay in Baghdad, or was it always the intent that you would keep pushing on? Uh, to our knowledge, we were to hit Baghdad and that was it. Right. Okay. Um, and and then we got the, the call to go to Haditha and it was like, oh, okay, we're going to go out there and then come back to Baghdad. And then from there, they're like, hey, nope, we're driving north. Um, once, once we get to Missoula, I mean, it, it's quiet. Uh, you know, I know the 10th group was up there and uh, the Kurds were doing a lot uh, up north. It, it's quiet. Um, we, we really didn't go into any heavy battle, uh, at least from my standpoint into that area and we'd get into skirmishes here and there during our daily patrols but come gosh 
come May, June, July timeframe, uh, we were going downtown near the university and we would park a truck, take off our body armor, walk down the street, go get a hamburger. You know, it was, uh, it was very quiet, very easy going. And, uh, and you're right. There was a nice lull, uh, probably until about, uh, August, September, uh, of 2003. All right. And so what happens next then? So, uh, so for me, uh, still hang out there with 101st. We go through the winter. Uh, insurgency is kicking off to our south, but not so much there in Missoula. Uh, so it, it's more just uh, what they were calling then coin uh, right. counterinsurgency operations. And it was presence patrols daily just going out and having that, uh, that face. But we really didn't have uh, a great mission. It was just, hey, drive around and see if something happens. Uh, and that really started to irritate me. I was uh, was not happy with you know our mission and what we had to do. Uh, I was doing it, but just wasn't happy. Uh, a few times we would get tasked out to SF teams or to Delta, and you know you sit there and you watch, and you're like, man, this this is where I need to be. These guys are actually going out, actioning targets, and on the nightly going out and making it happen. You know, much better than sitting in a Humvee driving around town for eight hours a day. Is that where you got your first exposure to kind of, this is what I want to do next? Yeah. Um, so growing up, well, not growing up, but actually my, my first couple of years there being at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, we would see fifth group guys all the time, uh, whether it was in the gym or going out doing PT. Uh, and they always looked larger than life. Uh, the guys were massive, you know, just huge dudes that were physically fit and, you know, that, you know like, I'm looking at him like, all right, yep, that is not me. I can't do that. <laughs> um, but then finally deploying and being with him, you know, you look at him and you're like, okay, uh, these guys are, there's normal sized guys too. Uh, you know, not all of them are big buff uh, gym rats, but uh, I kind of looked around and, you know, being on targets with them, you know, you kind of realize, okay, I can do this as well. So that was, you know, eye opening for me, being able to see them go through their, drills and their action and how they action targets it's like yeah I, I can definitely do this so all right so when you get back is that when you end up going to assessment selection yeah so uh i got back and within days i was at the recruiter's office saying hey uh, i'm ready to go so they got me in pretty quickly uh said attended a selection assessment in may of 04 and finally get to the key course in august of 2004 all right, so that's what uh, close to almost eighteen months by the time you finished the Q course, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Q course. Uh, let's see, I started in August of '04 and in December of '05 uh, graduated. So yeah, just about eighteen months of uh, going through that. So, um, did you know what you wanted to be as a Green Beret? Whether it was a weapons sergeant, communications guy, demo, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, so when I got there, uh, I, I put down uh, 18 Bravo, 18 Bravo, 18 Bravo for all of my, <laughs> uh, <laughs> all of them. Uh, just because having worked in the AT section, uh, you know, knowing 50 cals, Mark 19s, tow missiles, javelins, you know, knowing those weapon systems already, I think I had a, 
good idea of what an 18 Bravo's job should be. And, and it did, it did, did very well for me um, as an 18 Bravo. You know, most 11 Bravo's never touch a Mark 19 or 50 cal or a toe, especially. So, and, and those are our, our prime weapons within an ODA and uh, just having a good background you know, as a private, you know, because you drill and drill and drill so much on those weapons, you know, you understand the crew drills, you understand the weapons, how they work. So I, I think that worked out in my favor being an 18 Bravo. So after you kind of get your Green Beret um, and you finish all that, do you get a sense of yourself at this point in time? Like, okay, I'm finally where I want to be. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you graduate and you put that green beret on, you definitely feel this sense of accomplishment. You know, you're, you're starting to get down that path of finding your purpose. Um, you know, uh, I was, I was still very nervous and, you know, not really knew what, know what to expect to get to an ODA, but, uh, you know, once you got to the team and, get jiving with your, with your crew. Uh, you, you definitely realize, yeah, this is, this is where I always wanted to be. And this is what I've always wanted to do. How quickly did you get, get to your first, uh, your first team in deployment? So I got to group in January of 06, uh, and got assigned, uh, to ODA five two four, And that was mid January, uh, only to find out, you know, they're redeploying from their most recent trip and uh, the battalion is being put on an 18-month stand-down because they had been doing nonstop deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq for the last couple of years. So <laughs> there was a, a big upside-down frowny face, you know, kind of sad and discouraged, like, oh, man, I got to wait 18 months before I can do anything. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's, that's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that turned out for uh, being the better because I got to attend – so many schools and so many training venues with my team that, uh, you know, I definitely knew, you know, our team is ready to, to do just about anything. So when do you get to your first deployment? So, uh, the, the team did a, a J set in October timeframe of 2006 to Lebanon. Uh, we were the first ODA, uh, into Lebanon since the eighties. Uh, so they basically, uh, shut down the J set program, uh, after the, uh, embassy bombings and the marine barracks bombings so we were the first ODA to go in there and start training with folks uh, in 2006 and then didn't get back to Iraq until about November of 07 so and what were operations there what was the mission in 07 because that was that was at the prime time of the surge yeah yeah so we were going into the surge and uh and really and we had a a very somber tone uh, prepping for that deployment Uh, so our PDSS deployment site survey teams go over so a couple guys from each ODA go out and you know they go survey the land that they're gonna work on and do their uh, initial handover stuff with the the team that's at that location and uh, one of the team leaders from our sister teams uh, was in an IED attack and that's when EFPs were coming in pretty big yeah Uh, it it killed a few in the truck and it severely injured uh, that team leader and, you know, that, that happened on a PDSS and we're like, hold crap, you know, it, it's, it's bad. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we we're going to be stationed in Fom Kalzu, so south of Baghdad, uh, north of Karbala area, uh, with a focus on going back into Karbala. Uh, so Karbala had uh, shut down the PJCC uh, and moved everybody out of there. So our team was uh, going to go back in and kind of establish a foothold back in that city. And, uh, get things 
back to normal. Um, was there so, a was there a kind of lull in doing foreign internal defense at that point in time, and it was more about operations and and high value targets and things of that nature? Um, for for some teams, yes. For some teams, no. Uh, everybody had a fit force because uh, they they wanted to put that Iraqi face on every target. They didn't sure. want it to be just you know Americans doing every engagement. Uh, so everybody would get a. Uh, you know, an Iraqi counterpart, whether it was, you know, Hillis SWAT or, you know, guys from different uh, special operations police or uh, military units. On that deployment, what is your operational tempo like? So that one was, it was a little different. So we were, we were named a non-kinetic ODA, <laughs> uh, if, if that makes any sense. Boy, every, everything you had hoped for, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, everything that a young 18 Bravo <laughs> is looking for. Um, it doesn't mean we didn't get into little skirmishes or, you know, get our share of IED blasts, but, uh, you know, it was more of that low signature, you know, and uh, non-kinetic uh, type environment. Uh, but we, looking back on it now and having the qualifications and doing some more uh, trainings as well as different deployments, I fully understand, you know, the, the impact that that trip had uh, during that time frame. So, and it was on your next deployment in which you got injured, correct? Yeah. So, um, you know, kind of, kind of like uh, 2003. I, I get back from the trip and uh, I realize, okay, non-kinetic operations, not what I want to do. So, uh, I went searching for a new job with uh, the SIF. Uh, the, combatant commanders and extremist force uh for us that was alpha company first battalion fifth group so i'd only be moving downstairs uh you know one flight and that would put me on every oda's kinetic <laughs> everybody there is you know out doing counterterrorism and direct action so I, I moved downstairs uh and got assigned to uh oda 5111 and we immediately turned around and went back to iraq uh so we were there. Uh, Where in Iraq this time? So this time uh, I'm going to Missoula. Um, so we back in your old stomping grounds. Yeah, back in the old stomping grounds. You yeah, know, perfect. I, I spent a good nine months of my life there, so I knew where we were going. Kind of knew all the back roads and who to talk to. So uh, that, I'm that curious. One... This was five years later after you were there for the invasion. So how different did things look when you got there five years later? So we were living on an airfield and. When I was there with 101st, you know, the airfield was just getting established. You know, we, we had a couple tents out there, you know, helicopters all around. I come back, that thing, you know, it was a fob city. You know, it, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you've been there, you, you know, it's, it's yeah. you know, grown exponentially. And, you know, things that you don't think belong in a, a war zone are there. So they got restaurants set up. They've got little hookah cafes everywhere. They've got, you know. It's like, all right, so this this is war, huh? <laughs> Just like we all thought it would be. Yeah, yeah. There's there's gyms about every fifteen feet. You got huge chow halls and war is hell. They're at a cafe latte at Green Beans. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was a major major change, uh, especially going from you know, being in Baghdad in '03 and then going back to you know Biop or uh, anywhere around there. You know, it just amazing growth and just sure how it blew up so all right well back to uh, the trip itself and, and what your job was and how you got injured yeah so uh getting back uh you know we're, we're part of a, a task force up there in missoula uh 
actioning, doing kinetic targeting uh, nightly. Uh, I think uh, at one point we were at uh, 50 missions in less than a month, and it was constantly daytime, uh, time-sensitive targets and uh, nighttime action arm for you know the rest of the task force. So it, it was almost nonstop 24-7 ops, you know, hit a target, come back, process, until, all right, we got another target, continue to go, continue to go. Uh, during that time, uh, I've had a few uh, few jumps, few falls, and having an, an injured back prior to, uh, in 2003, uh, just started aggravating, 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 uh, to the point where, middle of the night, we get a call, hey, everybody, let's go, I could get out of bed, and I just fall flat on my face. And my roommates look at me like, dude, all right, let's go. And I, I go to pick myself up and my legs just aren't there. So uh, come to find out, I had basically herniated a bunch of discs in my lower back, fractured a couple facet joints, you know, just, just a bunch of, uh, I, they call it overuse, but it was just, just a bunch of things added up to that point. So uh, they decided it'd be best for me to, to medevac at that point. How did that sit with you? Horribly, absolutely horribly. So there, there's nothing worse than uh, leaving your team behind, uh, especially for something as dumb as you know a, a little back injury. You know, uh, I I knew I'd herniated a disc in 2003, uh, but you know I was able to to push through a deployment. I was able to push through the Q course with it. You know, it, it didn't really aggravate me. I knew what my limitations were and then how to to get around them. Uh, but at this point, you know, we were running so hard and there's just no time for maintenance. There was no time to really check on myself because we were just constantly go, 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 uh, that it all just kind of built up to that one morning or that one middle of the night. And, uh, you know, I can't feel my legs. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's disheartening. It's, uh, heartbreaking. You know, you, you don't want to go out like that, you know, everybody expects, I can't say everybody, but most of us expect, you know, as warriors, like, all right, I'm going to die in the battlefield. You know, that's, you know, you're accepting of it, but to be taken out, you know, <laughs> cause having a week back, you know, yeah. it's horrible. Um, and, and really that, that weighs on me for, uh, several years afterwards, uh, really, you, you don't realize it until you look back, but you know how it really sets your tone and how it, uh, how it affects you daily. So not just the pain, but just the thought of not being able to operate and not being out there with your teammates. So. Well, stay with that for a minute, because it's not like you weren't able to deploy again. You were, and, and granted, you know, I don't know if the, the operations were as kinetic as you wanted them to be, but it wasn't like you were incapacitated and no longer could, you know, be in the fight, correct? Yeah. So uh, I, I came back and uh, our docs were like, Hey man, your back's pretty jacked up. And, you know, it's going to take a long time to heal. You know, it, being an SF is not the place to heal. And, you know, you know we, we need strong soldiers that can go out and fight. And so you're, you know, you're going into Sergeant Major's office and you're trying to explain that to a, a company Sergeant Major or a battalion Sergeant Major. And it's like, well, where can we best, you know, put you? And, you know, at the time they were like, all right, let, let's med board. Because, you know, right now being in the military or even being in this job is not right for, you know, your, your body currently. Uh, so gosh, that, that was a, a real kick. Uh, and, you know, hearing that and saying that like, okay, yeah, look, let's do it. We'll med board. Uh, that, that was really rough. Um, but I was able to, uh, kind of look around within the group and I found a, uh, a nice little desk job in the, uh, group force modernization office. So it was, a you know, a non- TDA assignment. It was just a, uh, 
you know, a little shop that a guy had created a few years back and, you know, for fifth group, it had grown and grown and grown. And they were like, Hey, we need, we need somebody you know, that's got experience to come in here and you know, set up a, a soldier survival section. So I, I jumped at that. I was able to talk to the doctors and they were able to stop the med board. And, uh, I, I found a place. So again, fa- found a purpose for a little while. So what was the point of the group force modernization soldiers survival? I, I mean, you know, what were some of the things you were doing there, I guess? Yeah. So, um, I guess this is kind of where, uh, Tom Kerr found himself. Uh, so within, uh, special forces and USASOC, you have uh, a combat development uh, directorate. You have a, a force modernization section down at the, uh, SF command level. And then at the group level, uh, we started building out these force modernization shops, uh, to support the groups. Uh, and basically my job was to, sit and work with the ODAs and understand their requirements. So if guys are getting ready to go on a climbing trip or if they were going to go to a new area of a different country, you know, they, they would identify, you know, needs that they had to fill and I would go out and help them fill them. So it, it took having an understanding of uh, the defense industry, uh, especially for, for my portfolio, understanding body armor, kit, uh, clothing, boots, and, you know, knowing what those capabilities and the ability of that equipment was and how it can affect uh, our force. So I spent uh, the next three years, so that would have been May of 2010 until August 2013, learning and understanding the defense industry, uh, what all the different uh, companies had to offer. Uh, I would tour uh, companies like LBT, Eagle, Cry, Tier, uh, New Balance, Arcteryx, I, I would tour their facilities just to get an understanding of what they had and what they could do, and then take that knowledge and go back and equip our ODAs uh, with the best equipment that they could have. So give me an example of something that you came up with. Like, you know, what, what did you recognize from going to tour these facilities that was actually put into the force? Yep. Um, so I, I think one of the biggest ones was uh, the the current generation of body armor carriers for all of SOCOM. Uh, they are currently using the, the cry AVS, uh, system. And that was, uh, kind of driven not just from my shop, but from across all the other force mods and the SF command force mod. Uh, so we kind of took a, a commercial off the shelf, uh, product that cry carried with a cage and turned around and created a scalable, uh, body armor system that would then uh, be used for entire force. Uh, and that's, that's what all of our special operators now have in their kit bag. Uh, but a few things uh, individually. So uh, about the time that I took control of the soldier survival section, uh, you had a bunch of Rangers that were in the Hilo accident in Afghanistan, and a few of them were caught inside. Uh, and basically they were uh, trapped by their lanyards that they were using uh, within the, the aircraft. And, you know, for, for most special operations, we don't fly with our seats in. We go in and we clip to the, uh, to the rings on the floor of the aircraft. And that's what holds us in, you know, keeps us from flying around. That way we can fit more people and more gear on the bird. So a uh, group commander comes in. He's like, hey, I don't want any of our guys to die from, you know, being caught inside of the aircraft. I want them to be able to get out. So that was uh, my first thing. And it became a group issue. And then, uh, Eventually, some other groups and other units started picking up on it as well, but coming up with a, a lanyard system that had uh, positive retention, you know, under stress and duress, 
but then, you know, an emergency uh, release system, you know, and, and it was something that was actually made for uh, the aircraft versus uh, I think what we were using at the time was like boat hardware. So, you know, stuff for maritime. So that was, that was probably one of the, the first things I did. Uh, and then again, you know, help ushering in the ops core helmet to uh, the entire SOCOM uh, uh, theater side soft, uh, um, a lot of other good things, uh, working with Natick and U.S. Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine, uh, doing studies as far as, you know, how much weight should we be carrying? How can we offset the weight? You know, a lot of good, fun projects like that. I don't want to underscore this, but in reality, at least, you know, my two cents of what I hear, the lasting impression you not only left on, you know, the war, but on the military, you developed in a, 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 you know, body armor carrier that's being used across the board. You have a new helmet that's being used. You uh, figured out a way to make sure soldiers aren't trapped in a in a helo uh, if there's an accident or anything like that. They, these are long time lasting effects that probably nothing in combat would even rival. That is, uh, that's spot on. Um, you know, and again, something you don't realize while you're doing a job. Uh, I think uh, while I was there, I uh, I worked with a lot of good folks, and it was, uh, hey, here, here's here's your budget. Go out and you know make sure our guys have the best things possible. And, and you know that was my mission. I set forth, and you know I did it. Yeah, you look back on it now, and like, you know, help help pave a way for our guys to have the best gear possible. You know, and and that's thankful to a couple other guys at SF Command and through the other. Uh, uh, group uh, force mod shops so uh, as a team i think in that time frame we did a lot of good for a regiment and kind of set the tone uh for what you know we can do in a short amount of time instead of that long uh, military procurement process so yeah i mean it just and comparatively speaking for the non-military folks i mean it's just like you go on a raid and you go get a bad guy you take out a couple of other bad guys you might save a life or two on that particular moment but the equipment that you developed is continually saving lives for the years to follow. And that I, I think is unquantifiable to a certain extent. Uh, I, you know, I, I haven't thought about that way and uh, you know, it kind of brings chills to me thinking about it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's That's just, smart. you know, it's the reality, no problem. It's, it's the reality of it. I mean, uh, right. sometimes, and again, you know, there are bad guys that get taken out that would have had a, a, a long lasting effect, but generally um, in your line of work, when it comes to, bringing bad guys to justice, these are all independent events of one another that aren't connected. Whereas, you know, a new helmet and a new generation of body armor is something that the entire force is eventually going to use because what happens now in the regular army, we all copy what all the special operate, uh, special right. ops guys do, yeah. right? I mean, we have, we have pockets on our sleeves now because you guys thought of it first. I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> it, it, the, the regular army is a little bit slow in that sense. But the point simply is, is that, you know, that it's, that effect is much more longer lasting than anything you could have probably accomplished on any given raid or any given target uh, would have been. So to that, you know, obviously a big tip of the cap and thank you for all the hard work. Yeah. And I think uh, in testament to the guys that were in that, the, the same position as me during that time frame, guys like uh, Chris Van Zant, currently at tier tactical, you know, we really pushed industry to develop a lighter gear and longer lasting, just overall better gear in that time. And, and I think, uh, industry has you know come tenfold ever since you know that time frame you know they, they've really pushed it and uh you know the, you see continuous uh, uh evolutions of their gear just getting better and better and better so 
yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have been a part of that and help provide guys with uh, the best gear possible. In that three plus years, does your back actually heal? Uh, I wouldn't say heal. Um, Is it so good enough we, to deploy again? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I I jumped on board with the, the Thor 3 program. So the total human optimization uh, recovery, and I forget the other part of it, but um, you know, working with a physical therapist almost on a daily basis, working with uh, our trainers uh, every day, uh, really to focus on strengthening core uh, and, and as well, just kind of strengthening my mind, you know, just kind of putting pain behind me and uh, working to get better. Uh, so I, I, I pay uh, so many tributes to uh, that team there that we had at fifth group and you know, they, they, they did put me back together uh, uh, to the point where uh, in fact, we were talking about them earlier, but uh, I, I went to uh, the group CSM at the time, Sergeant Major Cox. And I'm like, I'm ready. I'm ready to do it again. So he, he got me back to the teams um, about 2013. Hey, everyone. Just a quick break from the pod to tell you about my front page story. Looking for that perfect Mother's Day gift or really for anybody in your life, especially parents or grandparents whom you can't go to visit these days? Check out myfrontpagestory.com. You'll talk to a professional writer about your mom, your wife, grandmother, whomever it is for 10 to 15 minutes, and they will write the most incredible story about her or that person. There's something really amazing about saying to somebody, I wanted to do something special and unique for you, so I had a story written all about you. My front page story makes it look like an actual front page on a local newspaper framed and represents a lifetime keepsake that you'll put up in your house immediately. It's incredibly emotional for them because they get to read the quotes from you in print that say things like, I can never thank you enough. I wouldn't be who I am today without you. You are the most important person in my life. It just seems to hit different when they read it in that form. The bottom line is she'll cry happy tears and you'll win. So go to myfrontpagestory.com and put in the code HAZARDGROUND20. That's myfrontpagestory.com and the code HAZARDGROUND20, capital H, capital G, Hazard Ground 20 to receive 20% off of whatever story you buy. Again, my front page story, it's an amazing gift that your loved one will truly cherish for the rest of their lives. Now back to the Hazard Ground podcast. All right, and so you have how many more deployments before you bring us kind of to present day? Yeah, uh, so deployed throughout the Levant region of the Middle East, so back to Lebanon, uh, did a uh, sock fort in Jordan. Uh, and then uh, part of a an OIR trip into Syria in 2016, uh, and that about wound up my career at Fifth Group. So in 2017, I uh, came here to Fort Bragg uh, to be part of the Special Warfare Center in school, and that's where I'm currently sitting. All right, let's go back to Syria for a moment because that's at least somewhat still topical in news and everything else as we record this here in the middle of March. Um, what was the environment like there? Uh, was it dramatically different? Because, uh, I mean, again, Lebanon, by all accounts, is other than individual sort of uh, bad dudes running around and, and planning for other attacks elsewhere, Lebanon is fairly safe. Syria, on the other hand, was not. Like, there was still a lot of right. action going on. Even if it wasn't targeted at Americans, there was a whole uprising from the civilian standpoint. So what was that like? Yeah, so, yeah, you know, Lebanon... Uh, is gorgeous it's uh the I, i've heard least that yeah. jordan i hear are, are gorgeous oh yeah yeah you, you you definitely do a lot of tactical tourism whenever you're in those countries 
and uh, you know, great places to be. You're still a part of the fight. You're, you're providing support in other ways. Um, but going to Syria, um, you know, uh, we had a team, probably the most senior team uh, within our battalion, if not the entire group. And uh, but we had a, several guys that were new, never been to combat, never seen it before. So you know, kind of like I was saying earlier, you know, in the invasion of Iraq, you know, you don't know what to expect, and you kind of act all macho. You know, prior going into Syria, you know, like, hey man, we're gonna rat line into this country. We're gonna, you know, <laughs> you know, we're we're invading this country as an ODA, and you know, we're gonna be ourselves. I think at the time there was less than a hundred Americans in the country, and. Uh, you know, just kind of letting the guys know, like, hey, it's it's fun to fantasize, and uh, you know, and you know, want to go to battle and everything else, but it, it all changes when that first round goes off, you know, and and the threat is real, you know, and and having those little one-on-one -on -one talks with the with the junior guys, uh, I think it was a little sombering for them, and, and they probably looked at us like, yeah, whatever, old dude, but um, I, I think you know we were able to kind of bring that into our training preparation up to that. So, you know, the guys, the guys kind of understood a little bit more when they were getting into it. Uh, but yeah, getting into Syria, uh, advise and assist and company. Uh, so we were working with uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces up there. So provide uh, partner capability as they took on uh, uh, Manbij. So a lot of people may have been familiar at the time, uh, the, the fall of Manbij and then eventually the, the march to Raqqa. So, uh, it was so different from any other deployment because you go into Iraq and you have, you know, your gunships, you have, you know, all these QRF elements within reach and you get out there and, uh, you know, the closest American forces are over a hundred kilometers away and they're, oh, by the way, they're across a river that only has so many points of crossing, you know, the, the, the guys to the north are not friends with the guys that you're working with. The guys here east are not friends with the guys you're working with, or you. The guys to the south just want to kill everybody. So you feel alone on an island, you know, you know with just 12 guys, you know, and, and almost that classic SF's, you know, mission, you know, going out and doing unconventional warfare with a, a guerrilla force. You know, it, it was the, at the time, what I felt like it was the premier actual SF mission. So. Gotcha. Were you guys involved in any action there? Yeah, um, uh, we got into a few uh, troops in contact, uh, but it wasn't until the next trip, uh, which I unfortunately was not part of, but my team uh, turned around and deployed just a few months afterwards that they did the march on Raqqa. And they, I think right now there's a, uh, I won't call it an investigation, but an inquiry into how many mortar rounds and how many uh, call for fire they did because they probably dropped more ordinance than any other ODA in uh, SF history. Really? But, yeah. Oh yeah. They, they were marching uh, from the North down into Raqqa. So they, they did an amazing job. So congratulations to five, one, three, four. You guys are awesome. Uh, but yeah, uh, we, we had a couple of troops in contact there in Syria, uh, no casualties uh, on our end. Um, but some good, some good uh, bonding moments for uh, <laughs> the team. <laughs> you know, you, you mentioned how you talked to some of the younger soldiers about going into contact and everything else, um, sort of existentially. When you think about that conversation, do you feel like it's a similar conversation you would have had with yourself or hope somebody had with you prior to the invasion of Iraq? Like, what would, what would have Sergeant First Class Tom Kerr have told, you know, uh, Specialist or, or Sergeant Tom Kerr heading into Iraq? 
Yeah, ooh, that, that's a that's a good question. Um, you know, li listen to the old guys. You know, the old guys have been around. You know, even if they haven't deployed to actual combat, you know, they they understand it all. You know, um, think you know, you, you you look at the old guys, and it's always like, yeah, whatever, old man. You know, I'm the the young gung ho here. You know, I'll shoot anything that moves, but. You know, when it comes down to it, you know, you, you have those seconds, you know, of like, okay, is this the right thing? Am I shooting at the right person? You know, it, you know, where am I actually being shot from? You know, so um, basically just uh, I would tell myself to, to open your eyes and open your ears and, you know, make decisions based off of everything that you have uh, the ability to make a decision off of, you know, and uh, don't look back. <laughs> make, make the decision and and don't look back. It's all good. So you're at the uh, Special Warfare Center in school now and sort of downloading some more of that wisdom. Um, what are some of the kind of like the lessons you're, you're trying to impart on the, this next generation of warriors? Um, you know, that's uh, I, I, I tell a lot of them, um, you know, it, it, it's a long road. You know, they, they've got a long uh, qualification course ahead of them. They've got so many different pieces of that pie and puzzle. Uh, but to, you know, to eat it like an elephant one piece at a time, you know, don't don't get too far ahead of yourself. You know, don't start dreaming about, you know, being on an ODA just yet. Just take care of what's in front of you and attack it and, you know, then set your sights on your next goal. Uh, I think that's the, the biggest thing for these guys going through uh, and girls now. Uh, is you know having uh, you know having your your sight set on that target in front of you. Take care of the twenty five meter, and you can get to that thirty three hundred meter later. So, I often ask uh, senior Green Berets this question, um, especially since you know people who signed up prior to nine eleven experienced a, a different world. But uh, we talk a lot on the podcast of Green Berets about how you know assessment selection is different now. The Q course is different now because there was this massive push that we needed more operators in the fight because of the demand of what their skill set was. Um, and in that there's a sense to not necessarily rush guys through, but you open the doors a little bit. You try to wide, you know, broaden your, your scope and, and your, your field of vision to try to find these people who are willing to do this. And in a certain, to a certain extent, you'll get a lesser product just because, uh, you're not as stringent in what you're kind of screening on the way in. So how are things different now, in your opinion, in becoming a Green Beret as opposed to when you did it? I would say now um, these kids are smart. Um, they, they, I think they're much smarter, much more technically savvy than, you know, any of us that came in in that 2004, 2005 time frame. You know, the, it's a very smart population that we have going through the course now. Um, as far as, you know, assessment and selection, it, it's the same uh, tried and true uh, system that we've had in place since, you know, we started a lot of the metrics that we uh, measure against, you know, the, the, those guys out there are still holding the standard. Um, uh, the, the guys going through any part of the Q course, they're, they're holding the standard, they're, they're doing everything they can, uh, even though they're told, hey, you got to you know, push them through faster, you know, push them through faster. Uh, There's still a standard uh, and I believe it's still being met. Um, and, and sometimes maybe even a little more stringent <laughs> depending on an individual instructor. But I think, uh, I think we're, we're in a good place. You, you got to always look forward. You got to modernize and, 
you know, sometimes experiment and sometimes the experiments work, sometimes they don't. Uh, some people will make it through during that experiment and some of them won't. So, uh, but you don't know until you try it. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to say exactly how a plan will be, uh, be implemented and how it will actually uh, come out on the other end, especially in this type of uh, deal when you're trying to take someone from either the street or, you know, currently in the military and make them a special forces uh, soldier. It's, uh, it's hard to tell. So, but I think we're in a good spot right now. How do you feel about the kind of role that special operations has in sort of the everyday, uh, you know, news cycle, everyday thought in front of our minds. I mean, full disclosure for those listening, you know, Tom and I know some of the same people within fifth group because I was attached to fifth group when I deployed. Um, And, you know, one of the first lessons I learned uh, as somebody who wasn't, you know, a a green beret was about being a quiet professional and and the environment that you're in and sort of that mentality. And now it's, you know, we talk, we hear on the news all the time, well, green berets are doing this and special operators are doing that. And, you know, the idea of uh, covertness, if you will, is sort of lost because of the nature of the combat that we've been sustaining for nearly 20 years. Uh, are you OK with special operations having a larger of a public role as it now does? I think uh, in the positive light, yes, uh, I, I'd like to see some of the negative stuff that uh, gets uh, publicized. I, I'd like to see that fall into the shadows, obviously. Like what? Like what you, what's the negative stuff you're referring to? Just out of curiosity. Uh, uh, so, you know, you go back to the night letters of uh, guys that were part of the Special Forces Qualification Course, the actual instructors that were writing about uh, okay. you know, the leadership in SWIC. Uh, you know, some some of the other things that happen uh, throughout the units, you know, and uh, really don't want to bring up anything about uh, what's going on at fifth group now, but, <laughs> um, you know, you, you you don't want to see the dirty laundry side of it. You, you want to see the, the positive stuff. Uh, and I think the positive stuff helps, you know, the drive our recruiting. I think that kind of helps shed us in a, uh, a very good light for the public, which, you know, we shouldn't be, you know, and, you know, for every uh, bad thing that happens, there's probably been 2,500 successful missions or something accomplished that nobody knows about. Um so I'm I'm really happy to operate in that noise, you know. Uh, at, you know, highlight us up here. Uh, try not to have any of that dirty laundry stuff aired, and just you know have the guys operate in the noise. And, th- and that takes a whole, especially in the the world of the Twitter, the Instagram, the Facebook. You know, everybody's talking about and showing off their their shooting skills and everything else. So kind of teaching these young guys, all right, hey, here's how to be a quiet professional, which is what it really means, you know, and you know how to teach them. Uh, how to lower that profile and be low signature. You know, you can still have a life, but you just need to be uh, cognizant of, you know, where you're setting yourself on that. So, well, and, and in fairness and full disclosure, again, you know, this podcast is sort of the benefactor of Green Berets who are willing to tell their story, you know, as whereas in, in times past, it was probably looked upon that they wouldn't tell that story um, because they're not supposed to. So I, I, I can't totally be upset that there is more of a public profile for it, but in the same respect, I also think we dig a little bit deeper, but we also are respectful of the fact that, you know, in understanding the, the job that you're asked to do, that we sort of allow you guys to dictate what's said, not sort of uh, say it for you. Right. And, you know, there, there's a lot of stories out there that, see, you know, they definitely need to be heard. You know, we, we've done so many good things, whether it's in special operations sure. or anywhere within the military. You know, there's stories that need to be heard. And, you know, that's what you're doing. That's what you're here for. 
you know, a, a lot of uh, me wanting to be a part of this podcast is, you know, hey, I'll, I'll share my story, but I also I want guys to understand, you know, uh, especially ones that are in and ones that are out, you know, you know we're all going through the same stuff, uh, you know, whether it's the, the injuries, you know, the hard times, the, the, the good times, you know, we're, we're still a team, we, we're still here to take care of each other. So I think uh, across the board, the, the more people that realize, you know, hey, we're, we're all in the same boat together, you know, we can kind of help band together and, you know, fix these things like TBI, PTS, uh, veteran suicides. So to that end, you know, we didn't really touch on that much. How much of your combat experience uh, still rings with you, whether it's good, bad or indifferent? I mean, how much of uh, what you went through over the last 20 plus years is sort of part of your daily life still every day? Yeah, so uh, it wasn't until I got here to Swick and I slowed down that I realized, you know, those things that were bothering me. I think while on a team and constantly prepping for the next objective, you know, you put all that in the back of your mind and it's no big deal. Uh, after getting here uh, to Fort Bragg, um, you know, things started happening that I, I just couldn't explain. Uh, you know, daily migraines, um, just constantly tired and uh insomnia every night, you know, and, and it wasn't anything I was dealing with when I was still operating. It was something that, you know, slowly kind of caught up with me uh, and I had a, no explanation for it. So I was being really, uh, really, uh, there we go. Here's, here's the memory loss piece, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I, I was being short uh, with my wife and my kids, you know, I, I was quick to snap, you know, nothing physical, but just, you know, uh, I would be irritated. No, I know the feeling. Uh, yeah. Yeah, easily irritated, um, you know, traffic, my God, you, know, you, you didn't want to be near me, you know, driving to work every day, you know, and if you blew your horn, I was going to run you off the road like, uh, you know, we, <laughs> we probably did in the early days of 03, but, yeah. uh, um, you know, the wife came to me and she's like, you need to talk to somebody. So uh, finally reaching out, you know, there, there was always that stigma, uh, you know, especially in the groups, like, hey, don't go to psych, you're, you're going to, you know, you're going to lose your clearance, you're going to, um, you know, be pulled off the team. You're not going to be able to operate. And and it's far from the truth. You know, you, you need somebody to talk to, especially with the, the many things that, you know, we've encountered over the years. And, and you should feel free to go do that at any time. You know, it's, I, I think it's, it's good for us. You know, it, it needs to be built into our regimen to actually go talk to somebody. Um, I think within the team room, you know, you have somebody to talk to, you can joke and play. I know uh, the guys from 5134, you know, we would joke about some of the ticks that we got into and it's like, oh man, hey, that one was pretty close, wasn't it? You know, and, and, and at the time that was enough. Uh, but when you get out when you're on your own or in my point, you know, I'm, I'm working at a headquarters and uh, I no longer have that team room environment, you know, it, it kind of comes slamming into the front of your head, you know, like, oh man, I've got nobody, no outlet, nobody to talk to. So, uh, so I, my message there is, you know, find somebody to talk to, whether it's a friend, whether it's a therapist, you know, whoever, find somebody to talk to, because there's a lot, you know, a lot of things uh, that you don't think about until you're standing still. And, you know, they, they're going to come rushing forward. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's there's quite a few incidents. There's quite a few moments in time that are just like, oh, man, you know, either that neither got me or the, the woulda, shoulda, couldas. You know, I, I wish I would have done this instead of that. I wish I would have turned left instead of turning right. You know, if I would have told that guy to, you know, hey, put your body armor on, then you'd probably still be here. You know, things like that. So it's, uh, 
uh, it, it's tough. And, you know, you, you, like I said, you, you go and you find somebody to talk to and you go through some of the programs and, it, and it's going to help. So when those decisions or those moments sort of creep back into your mind, uh, is there a process or steps you go through to sort of, you know, remind you that you shouldn't be carrying that burden or that, you know, there's a way to sort of clear it from your head. I mean, what do you, how do you handle it? Yeah. So there, there's a bunch of different things my therapist gives me. Uh, so like when, when the bad thoughts come in, you know, something at that time, you know, a, a lot of them, you know, weigh on bad decisions, right? Hey, um, there was no need for that guy to die. So, you know, so I go through and I, I rewrite the scenario, you know, so it, it's in a, more of a positive light or I, I turn and look at it and like, hey, because of that, this, you know, this got better or because of that, you know, this thing here. So so all those things you can't control, you kind of write your own narrative to it. Um, so weird little exercises like that. I don't call them weird, but, you know, uh, little exercises like that that my therapist have taught me helps. Um, and, and then also just, you know, when it comes up, find somebody that you can talk to about it with, you know, whether it's uh, emailing or texting, calling an old teammate or, you know, something that I've never done. You know, my wife is, uh, you know, I'm fairly sheltered about what I've done in my career. Sure. And yeah. uh, it, it's only been in the last couple months or a year that I actually open up and kind of talk about those things. So, you know, I, I just never wanted to, to have her worry about me while I was gone. So, you know, we don't talk about it. And uh, I'm a lot more open now, you know, having, you know, my partner, you know, that's there with me every day. So she has a little more understanding and we can talk about those things. Well, and there's also a sense, uh, I think, and I'm not speaking for you personally, but in sharing those sort of things with your spouse, there's a one, they won't understand, two, they won't believe me. Uh, you know, there there's <laughs> yeah. a certain amount of, uh, uh, you know, like this can't be real sort of thing. And the last thing you want to do is have to defend yourself for defending yourself, you know. And, and, <laughs> and it, so there's a lot of hesitancy in having those conversations with people who don't have this, a, the same or a similar experience. I mean, you and I can talk very candidly about certain things. Um, and I, I'm sure you'd have a lot less reservation than you would even your wife, because, again, I, I've. I've been fortunate or unfortunate, depending on how we look at it, to, to have plowed the same fertile turf that you did and and have that, that, that experience where I understand, you know, the, the nature of what, what you went through and, and how we can sort of help each other. Yeah. So, you know, with the wife, it, it took uh, a little bit of education, you know, so to help her understand a little bit more. You know, there, there's some uh, – that bring their wives in really close, whether they're part of the FRGs or they're part of the units, you know, setting things up and they, they kind of have a good idea of what we do. And then there's some, uh, in, in our case, you know, it probably uh, was a little bit of a detriment to our relationship, but, you know, we, we, you know, I sheltered my, uh, my whole family from what it is that I did uh, just so that they wouldn't have to worry. Uh, so it, it did take a little bit of education, uh, getting her and, you know, the family to understand, you know, what it is that I've done for the last 15, 17, 18 years. And uh, it helps with that understanding. So, you know, you, you know, you, you go and you watch a movie and you're like, okay, so see what they just did there. That's a little bit like what I used to do. Her. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you left just a little bit. Like there's, there's a lot Hollywood yeah. has changed about what we've done, but uh, just a little bit like it. So you yeah, get the idea. Yeah. Yep. So you're wrapping up 20 years uh, and you have a plan for what's next. And it revolves around a company you're starting called Eighth Order. Tell me about that. 
Yeah. So uh, uh, spent the last couple of years uh, knowing that I'm going to get out at 20, um, just in you know the physical ailments and everything catching up to you. You're like, all right, uh, is this going to be the right thing for me? And I decided, nope, it's not. <laughs> so 20 uh, is all I'm going to do. Um, so yeah, you, I've spent the last few years trying to figure out what I'm going to be when I grow up. And uh, uh, if you go back to that time that I was working in a forest mod shop, just before that, uh, I had made friends with a guy named Will Romes, and he's a Air Force National Guard member, and he had a, uh, a hobby of sewing kit. So, you know, we would get on the phone, we would talk about something, you know, and we'd create a product from it. You know, we started. Uh, started our own company then uh, called Tactical Revolution. We had another company called Five that was really built around clothing. And, uh, you know, it was a, for us, it was just a collection of like-minded individuals. And uh, we wanted to, uh, you know, make our own stuff. Uh, I eventually got that job at the force modernization side and didn't want to have a conflict of interest in any way. So uh, we kind of dropped that. Uh, we would remain in contact for the next 10 years, but you know, not really business related. It was always, you know, just checking on each other, seeing how we're doing. Um, so about about this time last year, uh, Will contacted me and he's like, man, I got to do something. I, I want to get back into industry. You know, I want I want to do something like what we were doing before. I was like, awesome, man. Uh, I'm all for it. What do you want to do? <laughs> and he's like, I don't know. He's like, we, we got to find something. So um, he was, I think, perusing the internet one day and he saw something from the guys from Eagles and Angels and, uh, how they were taking uniforms and making them into the flags for hats. And, you know, Will kind of thought, Hey man, I can do that. He's like, but you know, I don't, I don't want to do hats. He's like, I, I design clothing. I design kit. And he hit me up and he's like, Hey man, what do you think about doing something with, uh, with, uh, old uniforms? I was like, yeah. Um, and what, what's your idea? So he's like, let's, let's upcycle them and turn them into, uh, shirts and jackets and ties and, you know, all these different things for, you know, dressing up with. And I was like, nah, sounds like a pretty cool idea. Um, and, uh, you know, so kind of going off of the, uh, hey, what, what am I going to do with all these uniforms in my bag, you know, that's sitting out in the garage? Like, all right, I found a place for them to go. Um, it started snowballing a little bit, you know, trying to figure out what direction we wanted to take the company, how it was going to be, but we, we really settled on you know, we, we want to tell stories. Um, there, there's so many things that guys are doing overseas. Uh, now there's so many things that guys have done overseas in the last 50 years, you know, people that are still around to tell their story and and those stories need to be heard. You know, uh, I think like we were talking earlier, having that positive, you know, uh, the the positive media side, uh, definitely helps in the recruiting efforts for our soft guys or just the military in general, but, you know, letting the public know about the good that we've done, you know, because, you know, the people in Vietnam, you know, that it was everybody's a baby killer. Well, not everybody was a baby killer. You know, going into Iraq and Afghanistan and everything, everybody looks at it as a waste of time. Well, guess what? There's a lot of small victories uh, throughout each one of these small wars that are doing good for either people in Iraq, people here in the States, you know, wherever. So kind of like with you and this podcast, you, you're wanting to share stories. We want to share stories, too. Uh, in doing that, uh, I want your uniform, you know, send, send me your uniform. Uh, we'll take it and we'll, uh, assign it a mission number. So in my case, I'll take mission number, you know, five, two, four, cause that was my initial ODA. So I'll be mission five, two, four, my, my uniform that I wore when I was on, on that ODA 
will then get sent up to our factory. Um, I'll put a picture of my uniform on the website and say, okay, for the next two weeks, you have uh, mission number 524 available. You know, choose the color of shirt you want to go with it, and we'll add the, uh, the camouflage from the uniform to it. And now anybody that buys from that mission number will then get my story. Uh, and, you know, the, the idea is we can, you know, take an entire career and put it into that story, or we can just take a certain event, put it in that story. But for every shirt that's sold on our mission line, you're going to get the story that came from that soldier. So the years he was wearing that uniform, you know, years they served, you know, all that good stuff so that, you know, if it's a civilian that bought it or if it's a vet that bought it, whoever, they now have the story and they can continue to tell that story. It's a one way to uh, preserve a legacy, if you will. That's awesome. So, I want to give you uniforms now. <laughs> send them. Uh, I, the, the more the merrier. So um, I think uh, think we're getting quite a few donations now, and, and it's across the spectrum. Uh, we've, we've had people call in that have World War II uniforms from the grandfather that they want to make something with, which is a little difficult. You know, not the same materials that we're used to working with, but you know, we've had Vietnam, we've had Desert Storm, Desert Shield, guys from Gothic Serpent, guys that were in Panama. Uh, we've got guys uh, that were in Haiti, guys that were, you know, OIF, OIR, and, and also other little small things that have happened throughout the world. So we're getting a lot of cool uniforms, getting some amazing stories. Uh, I think probably uh, similar to you, just kind of overwhelmed with the types of stories that I've gotten so far and, uh, you know, in, in learning the history. So for every one, you know, I go back and I write a narrative on each one of these missions. And, you know, going back and doing my history research, you know, and kind of lining everything up, it's it's amazing, you know, just uh, how much we have done. And, and, and this is only so, you know, a few uh, few donations, but, you know, just how much those few have done for our nation is just absolutely amazing to me. So uh, I, I, I want to spread the story. I want people to hear them. Um, I want people to continue to tell them, you know, uh, they deserve it. All the guys deserve their story to be heard. Uh, good, bad, sad, you know, stories of loss, stories of heroism. You know, they, they need to be heard. That's incredible. I have some DCUs. I saved my DCUs for my first deployment. Remember, those were the best, by the way. Uh, yeah, yeah, DCUs, the ones where the crotch blows out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those are the most underrated uniform. Um, but anyway, I, I mean, for whatever reason, I saved them. They're still sitting in a box in my garage. I, I'd love to send some over to you. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. That would make, uh, so the Oxford shirt is our first offering right now, and that would probably make about 12 Oxford shirts from one uniform. So, uh, and it's something I didn't really hit on, but uh, so the proceeds from these shirts, uh, we got a good portion of our proceeds that'll go to some of our partner uh, veteran organizations who work on uh, combating veteran suicide, uh, helping guys out with TBI issues, uh, as well as PTS issues. Uh, so we're, we're currently working with uh, the Special Operations Care Fund and uh, the guys down at uh, Camp Southern Ground. Uh, so both uh, Georgia- We, we are familiar uh, with Camp Southern Ground very well, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll actually be down there, I'll be down there end of March uh, to really discuss and nail down how our relationship with them looks. but. They are an amazing organization doing great stuff for our warriors right now. Uh, same thing with SOCF. They're they are doing amazing work uh, in the TBI field, in the counseling fields, uh, you know, above and beyond what those uh, service members would get while in uh, the military. So, And again, the website, eighthorder.com is where you can go get all the information. And uh, you can donate your uniform there as well. And 
uh, place in order. Uh, and so again, eighthorder.com. That's amazing. I'm, I'm, I, it's such a unique idea. Um, I don't really think that anybody's even kind of thought of anything like this, but uh, it's pretty yeah, incredible um, that you're going to wear a, you know, a button-down shirt and someone's going to see the camouflage on it, and the first thing you're going to do is, well, what is that about? Why, why, why is that your shirt? And all of a sudden, it's a story to tell, and I think that's, that's incredible. Absolutely. And, and that's kind of what we see is, you know, it's a, you know, it's cool for one. It just looks awesome. I'm, I'm looking at a picture of one right now, just, you know, this white Oxford shirt with a multi-cam button trim, you know, and then, you know, it's, it's a, it's a conversation starter. So everybody's going to ask like, Oh, what's, what's up with that? And now you get to tell the story of, you know, the, the soldier that wore that, or maybe it was from your uniform and you get to tell your story. Uh, you know, it's a it's a good way for veterans to it's a, express it's a, themselves. It's a different like memorial bracelet, if you will. You know, we all wear those right. bracelets, except you know, uh, instead of just seeing a name and and KIA and the date they were killed, this is a a, a story of somebody that you know you, you've take the t- you t- took the time to learn about and and pass it on. So uh, I think that's again incredible idea, man. De- definitely, uh, it's just Absolutely. very unique. I love it. Yeah, and and. Props go out to uh, my business partner, Will, for having the, the vision, uh, as well as uh, other companies that are out there that are doing something similar. Um, so, you know, we, we definitely draw a little bit from what Equals and Angels is doing. Uh, also, um, you know, just the, the stories of, um, you know, companies that are doing the, the quilts. You know, I, I don't know if you've seen some of the combat quilts or anything like that, but, you know, people, they, we didn't have this grand idea, uh, but we are you know, trying to take it to a different level, but uh, definitely a big shout out to those companies that were doing something similar that kind of helped us push in our direction. So, well, Tom, I mean, amazing story for you personally, but uh, again, the lasting impression you've left on the military through your work, um, you know, in the soldier survival unit. And now the, the impression you're leaving on everybody uh, with eighth order, I think is, is amazing. Uh, I just, uh, I'm totally enthralled by the whole thing. Uh, But certainly again, the message that you've left, I think, here on this show is about handling your business, talking to the people that you need to talk to, and, and not letting sort of the demons that have overcome many of us in, in a bad way uh, overcome the ones that are still here. And, and certainly, you know, that message needs to be heard loud and clear. Yes. Um, if if anybody takes anything away, that that's it. You know, everybody has a purpose. You just got to find it. And there are places and people out there that will help you do that. Um, and, and eighth order wants to try to help that, you know, we'll, we'll help tell your story and, uh, we'll also help you get to the people that can help. Tom Kerr, thank you so much for your time, honesty and candor. And certainly thank you for being part of the hazard ground. Hey, Mark, I appreciate it. And, uh, quick, uh, before I go, your callers can, or your listeners can, uh, use the code hazard 15 and that'll get them 15% off their order on eighth order items. Awesome. Hazard 15, H-A-Z-A-R-D 15 on eighthorder.com. Again, Tom Kerr, thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
Angie's List is now Angie, your home for everything home. Angie still has the same top pros and reviews you've counted on for more than 20 years. Only now, you'll also get access to all the tools you need to make your home a happy place. Inside, outside, big or small, Angie helps you find the right solution for whatever you need done, all from your phone. It's simple to find upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. You can even search pricing guides to see what others paid for similar jobs and easily compare quotes from top local pros to make sure you're getting a fair price. From lawn care to repairing the AC to the project of your dreams, Angie has your home projects handled from start to finish. Plus, when you book and pay through Angie, they'll cover your project up to the full purchase price plus limited damage protection with their happiness guarantee. Make your home an Angie home. Check out Angie.com today. And for more on the happiness guarantee, go to Angie.com forward slash happiness hyphen guarantee dot htm. Winning comes in all shapes and sizes. It's different for everyone. One thing is certain. Every day there's an opportunity for a win. Just like scratchers from the Virginia Lottery. Every day grab and go. Every day giftable. Everyday fun. It's where anticipation meets instant gratification. Like the new Virginia Lottery Scratcher High Roller Blackjack with a chance to win up to 10 times your prize. Now, that's an everyday win. Drive to a retailer near you. Odds of winning any prize, 1 in 4.16.